There is a, a handout uh, that, again, is a, a, a brief uh, outline of the material we're going to cover today as we come to the book of Zephaniah. So if you want to start looking for Zephaniah, if you don't have a, a, an outline, please raise your hand and one of the ushers will get one to you. Looks like everybody's covered at this point. All right, very good. Zephaniah, again, like many of the minor prophets, is a book which often gets overlooked. Uh, and I have to say that it's probably one of the least known books to me, and there's only but a few phrases that would even have stood out in my mind at all uh, before doing this particular study. I've read it since I was uh, a young child, but uh, just in one of those books that made a, a significant impact. But I would say that it is an excellent book and a very profitable book, and I trust will help us all as we come. That if you, if you don't get anything else and you need to refresh what you got in, in Sunday school, go back and meditate on hymn number 241. It has a number of lines of thought that we will cover even in uh, this morning's class. Well, as we begin, as I always have with who wrote the book of Zephaniah, if you have your Bibles open there, you'll see that it's very clear in verse 1, the word of Yahweh, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And so the prophet's name is Zephaniah, which can mean either hidden or protected by Yah or Jehovah or Yahweh. It tells us the four generations uh, going back in his lineage, which is unique in, in the prophetic writings. Uh, and it seems that he wants us to understand that somehow he's related to the royal line. It's the only prophet who would have any kind of royal blood in him that we're specifically told uh, that that's their lineage. He was possibly a, a citizen or was somebody who knew Jerusalem well, which again would indicate that he was part of the royal family, uh, because he names specific locations. If you look down at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, he talks about uh, the fish gate and the second quarter, uh, the hills and the mortar, and there's no other place that the mortar uh, is mentioned in the scriptures. Um, and so in speaking of Jerusalem, he gets very detailed. So he was very much aware of the city. So Zephaniah. Uh, when was Zephaniah written? Well, it tells us again in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, 640 to 609 BC, roughly, was the time frame of his uh, working or his prop prophesying. Uh, it was a turbulent time, as we saw even with some of the other prophets, Naaman, Habakkuk, a turbulent time because the, the world powers were changing. Assyria is going off the scene. Babylon is coming on the scene. But if you notice in chapter 2 and verse 13, there's a little hint as to uh, a, a, at least a reference that can help us to place the timing. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, I will stretch out his hand against the north, excuse me, he will stretch out and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation parched like the wilderness. And so Nineveh and Assyria are still in place. Nineveh has not been destroyed yet, and so that also helps us to place the time. And again, the destruction of, of Nineveh was sometime around 612 or something in the, in the uh, late 600, early 600s, in the, around 612 anyway. 
Uh, ch chapter 1 and verse 4 speaks of Baal worship, uh, the remnant of Baal worship. And so, if you, as I'm sure if I were to ask you, uh, you could tell me something about Josiah's reign. The one thing that everybody, there are two things that I think everybody knows about Josiah's reign. How old he was when he, was, when he became king, eight years old, right? And the fact that he was the one that the book, when the book was found, there was a great reformation of the life and religion of Israel under Josiah. But here he talks about Baal worship, and Josiah did a great deal to eliminate Baal worship. So this may be that there, it's before any of that, or it may be that it was after that had begun that, that, the, that this was written, or that, that Zephaniah began to speak. Uh, because it was a time in which there was this transition. We're getting rid of this false wish, worship of Baal, and we're going to restore, Josiah was going to restore true worship of Jehovah. As well, the, the sins that are described in verses 1 to 13, and again in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, uh, would indicate a, a date of, in Josiah's reign before his reforms were complete. Uh, the, the sins of Manasseh, remember, were the, the sins that eventually became the, the markers that uh, everything after Manasseh, it's because of Manasseh's sin that judgment was going to come. The straw that broke the camel's back had been, in, or they had brought God to the point of saying, no return, judgment is coming, were Manasseh's sins. And Manasseh's reign and Ammon's reign were wicked reigns. And so those haven't been done away with yet. So it's very possible that Zephaniah played a significant role in his ministry. And so if you think of it, think of his reading it in, during that time before the Reformation comes. And Zephaniah comes on the scene with this particular message of the coming day of the Lord. And what impact that might have on the, the city and Judah in particular. Israel's gone off into captivity. They're gone. But Judah and Jerusalem are still intact. And he's speaking. And if he's speaking this prophecy during that time, it could be that this played a significant role in the Reformation. And if he's really part of the royal family, then he's related to Josiah. He could actually be influencing Josiah for good. And he could be one of the voices that was speaking in Josiah's ear that would have brought about his movement toward reforming Judah. So he's considered one of the 11th hour prophets. 11th hour, you know, an 11th hour uh, prophet, you could, you could call it the, the bottom of the ninth in, inning runs. Uh, for those of you who know American baseball, it's like, okay, it just, it's right at the last. You just got to, you know, they're going to be the last voice that you hear, the 11th hour prophets. And there's, so there's Jeremiah, because his ministry brought people right up to the time, and even after the destruction of Judah, Habakkuk uh, is again proclaiming his words before that destruction, and now Zephaniah comes along. So to whom was Zephaniah written? Well, if, Assyri if Israel's off uh, in Assyria and scattered, then he's not speaking directly to them, though there are prophets that speak to them in captivity. Uh, he's speaking to Judah. And so he speaks of Jerusalem, he speaks of Judah, Again, one of the men relating this toward jo in, to Josiah and his reign. Josiah's reform measure, measures succeeded in changing the Israelite religious practices and ridding Israelite worship of foreign elements, but they apparently failed to change the hearts of the people. And there's a lot of the, the, the books that I was reading that made this comment that even the best of leaders can't change the hearts of the people. 
And even the best of leaders who can reform a whole culture and by, by the rule that they might have put in, put in place and can uh, direct and encourage a, a society to act in a, in a righteous way, when they're gone, the hearts of men show themselves. And we see that particularly in the people of Israel, the people of Judah. So to whom was Zephaniah written? To written? It was written to Judah, the southern kingdom. And what is Zephaniah about? Well, the historical purpose, that is, for the, for the Jewish nation, it was another voice uh, bringing a warning of impending judgment and a call to repentance. Remember that the prophets, and I said, uh, came in in terms and addressed the eschatological, that is, the end time life, and the transitional life of the people of God. The people of God are at a point of transition. And the transition is, you're going the wrong way, turn back. Turn to Jehovah. And this is the call that comes once again through the prophet Zephaniah. But there's a lot in, in the terms of doctrinal purposes that we can find. There's a lot about God in this particular uh, uh, prophecy. It very clearly describes God in, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's the God Yahweh, the, the God who is the true God of Israel. Notice in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, these, these words that indicate that God in his speaking is speaking to Judah as my people. Verse 8, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the son of Ammon, with which they have taunted my people. And then again, at the end of verse 9, the remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. And so there is a God. He is a God who can be known. He is a God who speaks. We've got, again, him declaring uh, several times. It speaks of the word of the Lord and declares the Lord or declares Yahweh of hosts. And then Yahweh rules and judges over all the earth. We've seen this in the other prophets, right? And again, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it's clear this is a, a universal uh, a message for the, for the whole world, all the nations of the world, from the face of the earth. I'm going to, I will cut off man from the face of the earth. And so there are several references throughout in which God rules over all and God judges all. We'll come back to that. Yahweh expresses wrath against sin. Chapter 1, verse 18. On the day of, the, of Yahweh's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. So he's not only a God of wrath, a God of anger, and expresses it against sin. We see that in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 as well. We also see that he's a jealous God. And again, when we speak of God being jealous, it's not the, the, the jealous husband who's always thinking about himself. This is God who is the true and living God, the God who is the greatest good that can be known by any human being. And he is the sovereign king and creator of all and deserves full devotion, complete loyalty. And so therefore, he is jealous that his people... Devote themselves to him. One man even described this as a book about God's jealousy, God's demand for exclusive loyalty. And that's not megalomania. That is what is right because of who he is. And not just because he's supremely great and powerful, but because he's supremely good as well. He is 
Yahweh of hosts, which is always a good thing when you're a nation being attacked by other nations to know that you have a God who has armies. And that's what Yahweh of hosts, literally the God of armies. He's a righteous God, chapter 3 and verse 3, and there is no injustice in him. He is a God who dwells with his people. We've seen this in, in other parts of the Old Testament. We go, if we go back far enough, back to, to Exodus, the end of Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers, and they saw the tabernacle that was built, right? Because it was to be an apartment. It was to be a place where God would dwell among his people. The Holy of Holies was to have his throne set in it. And here we have him again, the king dwelling among his people. And he's a victorious warrior, chapter 3, verse 17. In the end, Yahweh is also again known as the God who keeps his promise. And he will restore the fortunes of Israel, chapter 3 and verse 20. And so these are some of the things we can learn about God. But certainly one of the central themes is a theme that we've uh, seen before uh, and some of the other prophets, but in particular, it's really highlighted here, and that is the day of the Lord. The day of Yahweh is near. And, and Zephaniah, and among all the other prophets, gives us, uh, answers the question for us, what exactly does that mean? This is a major theme that he wants to give us and describe for us. God will demonstrate his holiness on that great day. What will that look like? Well, the day of Yahweh, as one man put it, he will visit the land with judgment, verses 14 to 16 of chapter 1, and he will visit his people with deliverance. Now, there's three ways we can understand the day of Yahweh, and it's important that we understand this, the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. As you have in your notes there, it describes God's intermediate, intermediate temporal judgments, as well as God's final judgment of all mankind. So when he says the day of the Lord is coming, he's, the people are going to be thinking most likely, oh, you're talking about some invasion, right? Like, uh, like Habakkuk mentioned, God saying he's going to send the Chaldeans. This is the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of judgment. There's also going to be a day of the Lord when God comes and brings his people back to the land. And that's going to be the day of the Lord when he fulfills his promise to restore his people. And so the day of the Lord, he will visit the land with judgment, whether it's a partial judgment of the invasion of Judah with Neb by Nebuchadnezzar, or the full and complete fulfillment yet to come. But it's also used in the New Testament. And it's used a couple of ways in the New Testament. If you look with me at a couple of passages in Acts chapter 2 and verse 20. Acts chapter 2 and verse 20. He's not speaking of Zephaniah here, but the day of the Lord, as it's uh, mentioned in Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 20, we read, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be, or the name of the Lord will be, saved. And here it seems to be reference to the first coming of Christ, Christ's coming in gospel power, coming and dying upon the cross, coming uh, and setting his people free when the sky turned dark at his, at his crucifixion. And he goes on to say, those who trust in the name of, the, of Yahweh or the name of the Lord will be saved. So quoting there from, from Joel chapter 2, verse 31, we see that this has reference to the first coming of Jesus. 
But I think we're more familiar with the passages like 2 Peter. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we think of the great day of the Lord. We sang of it in the hymn that we sang. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Excuse me, I picked my look up from the page here. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so you see the two aspects of the coming day of the Lord. It's a day in which God is going to come and he's going to renovate this entire world by fire. And all that's going to be left is a, is a, is a nation, a, a, a realm, excuse me, where godliness dwells, where righteousness dwells. So there's going to be this renovation that takes place. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, also highlights this reality of the second coming being the ultimate, the ultimate day of the Lord. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And so this is, this is a reality. So when, when we read the day of the Lord, we can, we can think of it in terms of the coming judgment that's coming upon the people. We can think of it in terms of those intermediate uh, judgments that come, those intermediate blessings and restorations that come, but ultimately pointing to the coming of the King in the coming of Jesus Christ and the coming, the second coming of the King when the Lord returns a second time. And so that leads right into the Christological purposes uh, one man uh, suggests that uh, Zephaniah is alluded to by our Lord on a couple of occasions. In Matthew 13 and verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out, of, gather out his kingdom, all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness. He's going to remove everything that hinders the people of God and that is enemy to the people of God. And in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 3, and also again in chapter 3, we read, I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth. Every enemy will be removed. Chapter 3 and verse 19. I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn your shame into praise and renown. He's going to deal with all their oppressors. The coming day of the Lord. That when Christ, Christ says, this is what's going to happen when I return. I'm going to get rid of all of your enemies. Or Matthew 24 verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And again, this man referred to Zephaniah and said, Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 15 says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So it's going to be that time of darkness when God comes. 
In chapter 3, in verse 15, we have a phrase that talks about the king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. Chapter 3 and verse 15. And we know that this is fulfilled uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, probably the closest thing we have to an actual reference to the Messiah. Of course, Mark, of course, Mark records the Lord as speaking of the kingdom of God is at hand. And Luke records that the, the kingdom of God is among you or in your midst. And so again, we have this reference to the king being in their midst, the king Yahweh, Yahweh being the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling among his people. It is Emmanuel. And it is the one who comes to be the great warrior who will be victorious. So a number of key verses and applications. We'll skip over that for the time being and we'll come back to that, Lord willing, at the end. But now let's look at the outline. The outline of Zephaniah. Zephaniah has three dominant themes. Retribution, that is, dealing with nations and sinners according to what they deserve in judgment. Repentance, that is, this is the, the response that is being called for. And restoration, that is, a remnant will be restored and set apart. The first is a universal reality. The whole world will be judged. The last is a, is a reality for the remnant. The remnant, the humble remnant, humble believing remnant from among the nations will be restored. So I have three basic points, and I've really oversimplified this because all of these things kind of bleed into one another and the outlines get more and more detailed. And unless I'm just trying to make it a simple outline so you can remember it, so I can remember it. And the outline goes like this. We have in chapter one, a hopeless day, the day of Yahweh. In chapter two, hope in seeming hopeless or seemingly hopeless days. And then chapter three, hope consummated, hope consummated. Sorry, I didn't get all of the changes made to your, your handout there. So you can write those in. So chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. Now, this is the, one of the interesting things. If you pick up the book of Zephaniah and you start reading it, it reads kind of like the beginning of Nahum. And you come in and the first thing you start reading about is how God's going to remove everything, cut off everything, uh, judge everybody, deal with his people, bring judgment for their sins and, and, and leave them desolate. And that's kind of the way it begins. But almost, almost to, a, to, a, to a man, when they start giving titles to the book of Zephaniah, they use the word hope. And, and Zephaniah is considered the prophet of hope. But in order to get to hope, you have to get really all the way to chapter 3. There's little inklings in chapter 2. Very little of it in chapter 1. And so we start out with a hopeless day, the day of Yahweh, or the day of the Lord. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 2 of chapter 1. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. I will remove man and beast I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. Now, so as we come to this section and you read these words, we see, you know, we have the introduction in verse one. We've already looked at that. But now we're coming to God judging the world. Now, let me ask you, class, I'll be a little more uh, 
interactive, at least at the outset here, and then I'll pick up the speed to get through the whole material. But uh, tell me, class, what strikes you as you read verses 2 and 3 about this judgment? What stands out on the surface of this, these words? What do you see? Anything? Rob? The flood, right. So there seems to be a clear reference to the, to the flood. Now, the flood destroyed everything that had breath in its nostrils, right? Birds and mammals and people. And this is what God says he's going to do. He's going to remove the beasts and the birds and man. And he's even going to do more than was done in Noah's day because he's also going to remove the fish, right? So there's a reference to Noah, right? Any other reference? Creation, right? It's kind of a reversal of creation. This coming day of judgment is going to be a reversal of what he did in creating the world. When he created all of these things, and God is going to just come along and say, judgment is coming, and it's going to, as it were, take over the entire created order. So he reflects upon the flood, he reflects upon creation, and thereby highlights how universal this judgment is going to be. And the people who are going to be judged are, notice it says, the ruins along with the wicked. So it's particularly focused on the wicked. So this message comes, and then we have verses 4 to 13. Follow along as I read verses 4 to 13. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops of the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to Yahweh and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following Yahweh, and those who have not sought Yahweh or inquired of him. Be silent before Yahweh, it should be before the Lord Yahweh. For the day of Yahweh is near, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who, will, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares Yahweh, there will be the sound of the cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the people of Canaan, or your translation may say tradesmen, will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men with who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. And so here we have God's judgment on Judah. And really what we have here is the principle that judgment begins with the household of God. So God says, I'm going to judge the whole world in the wickedness, but I'm going to start with my people where wickedness abounds. 1 Peter 4 and verse 17 is the text. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, 
what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. Or in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they, to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. God had entrusted Judah with much more light, with much more privilege. And so the judgment begins with the household of God. But notice with me, first of all, that when he begins his judgment, he identifies some of their, their sinful practices. God will judge them for their erroneous theology. For their erroneous theology. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He starts with some obvious things which are wrong. The, the worship of Baal and, and the worship of the host of heaven. And so he says, Baal worship is going to be dealt with. It's the, the priests engaged in these false prophet, these false religions, these idolatrous priests, they are going to be cut off. We're going to cut off their names. In other words, there will be no remembrance of them. We're going to do away with this. The host of heaven was a, a, probably an astral religion that came with Assyria, where they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. And you could go up on your rooftop and look up, and then you could worship at any place. You didn't have to go to a particular temple. But I really want to highlight this matter of, of Baal worship because Alec Mateer made some very insightful comments. You know, we look at this and say, well, okay, Baal worship's gone. I don't even know where Baal is, you know. Oh, and, and, and heavens and stars, well, there are these astrologists that are still out there, and this, there's still some of that that's going around. And, but listen to what he says about modern Baal worship. Baal was the god of productivity. His function in Canaanite religion was to make land, animals, and humans fertile. Baal was a, another name for the gross national product. And wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, a sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as the essence of security... Baal is still worshipped. Baal was also the god of religious excitement, the sexual free-for-all. Human sexual acts were publicly offered to him to prompt him to perform his work of fertilization. No wonder his officiants were called the frenzied ones. Wherever Excitement in religion become, becomes an, an end in itself. And wherever the cult of what helps replaces the joy in what's true, Baal is worshipped. Did you get that? Wherever excitement becomes an end in itself. Get everybody really excited. Keep them all in, engaged. Or wherever... Wherever the cult of what helps replaces the joy for what's true, Baal worship is still engaged, is still in effect. And so he addresses this idolatrous worship. But in verse 6, he addresses perverted worship. Perverted worship of different kinds. Syncretism. That is, the seeking to blend false religion with true religion. They call on Yahweh, but they also call on Milcom. 
they put these two as equals on a par with one another. And then he talks about apostasy, those who turned back. It's another perverted uh, worship. They, they turned away from God. And then there's atheism. Now, the atheism here is, is, is not the atheism of a, um, what do I want to say, a, a thought-out religion against God. But it's more a matter of practical atheism, as we'll see a little bit later, that treats God as irrelevant. Now, I highlight these things because I think these are dangers that we all face. As we think of worshiping God, as we think of engaging in living for God, practical atheism is a real danger where we don't stop to pray about things. And we don't think it's necessary to ask God for his help or to thank God for what he's done or to think of God as behind some incident because we don't like that incident. Wherever we can be in danger of leaving God out as irrelevant to this part of our life, we are in danger of practical atheism. And so Yahweh says through his prophet, be silent. Day of the Lord is near. Shut your mouth. Put your hand over your mouth, as it were. And then he uses an illustration. I'm gonna, there's going to be a sacrificial meal. A sacrificial meal is coming, and God is going to serve up his sacrificial meal. And the sacrifice is going to be wicked Judah, especially their rulers. And he's going to serve them up. And the ones who are the guests, the invited guests, well, that's probably the Babylonians who are going to be the ones who are going to be there to, to bring this about. And it could be a reference to the birds that uh, other prophets speak of that are going to feed upon the dead bodies of the Israelites after they're defeated. And the reason is this is because the rulers have become worldly. Chapter 1 and verse 8. They clothe themselves with foreign garments. You think, well, that's a big deal, wearing foreign garments. He's not so much talking about the fact that they were wearing something that was made from, you know, made in China, made in Assyria. It's not that. As much as the, they, were, they were marked by foreign sophistication. You've got to look the part. You've got to fit in with all the people in, in, in that groove. And the distinctiveness of God's people was being eroded. And their dress was the indication that it was happening. I think there's some lessons we can learn from that as well. They also noted this little phrase, and I love this little phrase, where he says, um, they leap, leap, leap over the threshold, chapter, verse 9. I will punish on that day all who leap over the temple threshold. Anybody think about any place else where it talks about the threshold of a temple? Come on, I preached through 1 Samuel. It was only about 20 years ago. <laughs> What's that? Dagon. Dagon, right. right. So when the Philistines, when the ark goes into the, into the town, into the Philistines, right, they put it in the, in the temple of Dagon, and Dagon does this. Well, they stand him back up because he can't stand himself up, and so he does it again. Only this time, cuts his head off, cuts his hands off, and leaves him there. And they're on the threshold. And so the Philistines decide, don't step on the threshold. So they make a nice religious activity out of what this uh, new thing that's happened in their temple. Well, he takes it and he makes it even more trivial. 
He says they're trivializing worship. Don't step on the crack to break your mother's back. Don't step on the threshold. You might offend God. And they're just, they're just trivializing worship. What I thought was an interesting uh, twist that, they, that, that Zephaniah highlights for us. So there's worldly rulers and there's trivialized worship. And again, isn't this the kind of thing that we are so in danger of? Trivializing the word in order to caricature, in order to, to introduce things into worship that, that are tantalizing or, or, or pleasing or whatever, but it's trivializing the seriousness of coming before a living God. In verses 10 through 13, he then calls them to wail in grief and agony because this judgment is real and they need to think about this. And then that word tradesman, 111, where I read Canaan, the New American Standard, has for all the people of Canaan, and it is the word Canaan, that's actually the literal translation, but the the interpreters think that at this point in time, Canaan has, has gone as a, as, a, as a national entity, and so it's been replaced by something else. And so tradesmen is probably the right way to think of this. And again, Mateer very helpfully says, there is a possibility of a double meaning here. They were people of the Lord, but in business, they became like Canaanites. So again, the, the atheism is addressed because they say that, you know, God will not do either good or evil, verse 12. He's just, he's just uninterested. He's so transcendent, he's there, but he's not a, a part of our lives. As Again, as Matir says, this is not atheism as a dogma, but practical atheism. It does not say God is not there, but God is not here. Not that God does not exist, but that he does not matter. And that's a danger for all of us. And so then he goes on in, in verse 13 to talk about the transiency of this life, the insubstantiality of the things that this life can provide, and the uncertainty of the promises made by materialism. And then in verses 14 to 18, we have this graphic description of the day of the Lord. Near is the great day of Yahweh, verse 14, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of Yahweh, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in, fire of, in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. He says, listen to me. And he highlights two things. This is a frightening reality. And everything that you think is effective to protect you is completely ineffectual. Human might, the warrior is just going to cry out. Your own walls and, and, and human uh, efforts to protect yourself, the fortifications, even your own money, silver and gold. And whether that's money as the, as the merchants have, or whether that's money that's used to build idols, gold and silver idols, he says they're going to be absolutely ineffective on the day of, on the, day of the Lord's wrath. 
and he's going to judge all of the world as sinning against him. It doesn't matter if they're part of Israel or not. It doesn't matter if they've got Bibles in their hands or not. They sin against Yahweh as they sin against their conscience, and therefore they will be held accountable. That brings us to chapter 2. And there is hope in seeming hopeless days. And I, and I spent a bit of time there because those, some of those things about the picture of the church, I think, are really important for us to grasp and be sure that we're aware of. But we come then into the hope in seemingly hopeless days. Now, the day of hope begins. Judgment can be avoided. This is, this is just probably one of the most... Uh, the, this transition is a very encouraging one. And yet it's not a very uh, upbeat one because... He says, you want to avoid wrath? Repent. Right? Verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of Yahweh comes upon you. Before the day of Yahweh's anger comes upon you. Seek Yahweh, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances, Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of Yahweh's anger. He says there is hope, but it begins with repentance. And you need to seek God in faith. You need to humble yourself before him. You need to obey his commandments. You need to pursue his righteousness. And we know from the book of Romans that righteousness was not a righteousness that they made from themselves, but the righteousness which God gives by faith. Reminds us of Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And he goes on in verses 4 to 15 to talk about a, a, a comprehensive defeat of all of God's enemies. And, and you read this and you go, okay, the Philistine cities are mentioned. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, the seacoast, the Carathites. The land of the Philistines, the seacoast, the coasts, okay, Ashkelon. So the Philistines, God's going to deal with the Philistines, right? But he's also going to deal with Moab and Ammon, Amnon. Excuse me, Ammon. And so we have on the west, we have the Philistines. On the east, we have Moab and Ammon. And then he's not only going to deal with Ammon like Sodom, or and, like, Moab and Ammon like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's then going to go on to deal with the Ethiopians, one verse, verse 12. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. Where are the Ethiopians? Well, they're way down in the south. They're the, the big, uh, what's the word I want? Mercenaries that are hired to come in. And, and they've got, at one point, I think they had over a million standing army in one of the passages in the Old Testament. So they're a big, big uh, uh, enemy of God's people. And then he says, and I'm going to deal with Assyria up in the north. So this is any point of the compass that you can choose, wherever you see your enemies, I'm going to deal with them all. It's going to be a comprehensive judgment of God's enemies. And especially of Nineveh, which lifts its, itself up in pride. Verse 15, this exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Oh, beware of saying those kinds of things before God. Because he resists the proud. He humbles the proud. But in the midst of all this, he says, I'm, I'm, there's going to be a remnant of my people, verse 9. And the, my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. So he's going, they're going to get their land that is left by these others. 
In verse 9, there's a scattering. Uh, the scattering is, oh, excuse me, I, I jumped to chapter 3. So the, the, there's going to be all of the enemies, and yet there's going to be a remnant. A remnant of God in the midst of, of all of this that comes in this coming day of Yahweh. And that brings us to chapter 3, where we have hope consummated. So we had a hopeless day in that first chapter, just a, just a bleak picture painted of the coming judgment. And then in chapter 2, we, we have this wonderful kind of step back and reprieve. There's a chance, there's a possibility. You just need to repent. And that's not just saying, maybe God will hear you, but it's saying, if you do this, here's your way to avoid the wrath of God. Repent. Repent of your sins. Seek Him out. Pursue His righteousness as He has called us to live. Live according to that. God will preserve his remnant by his grace. And so then the hope consummated begins in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 7, with sin which hinders hope. Sin hinders hope. And that can either be the sin of the individual or it can be the sin that's all around us. Because if I've got hope that something's going to happen, and yet I'm surrounded by sinful activities, it can erode my sense that that hope is actually going to come to pass. That what I'm hoping for will come to pass. And those are the kinds of things he addresses in verses 1 to 7. Now here he talks about the tyrannical city. Notice what it says, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. The tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust Yahweh. She did not draw near to her God, to her God. This is talking to Jerusalem. This is not Nineveh. This is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a city which is rebelled and a city which is defiled and a city which uh, has judges that are like wolves and princes that are like roaring lions. Prophets who are reckless and treacherous, priests who profane the sanctuary. There are those who do violence in the, in, in the, in the sanctuary, they profane the sanctuary, me, and do violence to God's law. They don't want to follow God's law, they're destroying it. And in the midst of them is Yahweh the righteous. And so we have this judgment that is being described, or the sin that's being described, and surely we... From what we've already seen, we would expect God's going to say, I'm going to judge them. But instead of that, God says in verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, declares Yahweh. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold it. Wait. Whoa. 180 degree turn here. Do you see that? He's saying, so... Israel is this nation, or excuse me, is, this, is surrounded by sin, which is causing hope to be challenged or hindered. But then in verses 8 through 20, God's promises do undergird hope. And so he says, wait for me. Wait for me. 
Now, what am I going to do? I'm going to deal in wrath with your enemies. I'm going to, do, to, do, to eliminate in my anger all your enemies throughout all the earth. I'm going to express my zeal with a, with a fire. But that judgment that is coming, and maybe again there's an emphasis on the, the temporal judgments, is going to leave a people purified in lips. You see that in verse 9? For then I will give to the peoples purified lips. Now there's a little, there's one letter there, two letters I believe in the Hebrew. One letter, it's an S. Did you see it? Peoples. And there's just a, a wonderful indication in that one little S that God's remnant is going to be multinational. Not just one people. Not just Israel, not just Judah, but the peoples. He goes on, that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove them from your midst, your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. They will, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands be limp. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will quiet, be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy or with singing. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold... I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And in case you just think this is just the prophet, he ends where he started. The word of Yahweh, and he says, says Yahweh. Now, there's just so many promises in here. The scattering that took place at, at Babel, when all of the nations were scattered, are going to be, is going to be undone in some measure, because there will be a multinational remnant. Sin will be removed, chapter 3 and verse 11. Jerusalem will be purged. A holy nation, a holy remnant will come out of this. Peace and security and full provision will be made. 
Did you notice that in, in verse 13? Did, did you not hear, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble? Doesn't that, doesn't that conjure up some ideas of some other passage in the Old Testament, maybe, maybe in the Psalms that we constantly think of in that Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And John chapter 10, where Jesus is the good shepherd and they will He's the door. They'll come in and go out and find pasture. And you see these, these, this wonderful promise of peace, security, and full provision. Judgment will be satisfied. Your judgments against you, your sins will be, will be taken away and judgment will be satisfied. We'll get to Romans 8.1 sometime and we're all going to jump for joy, I hope, when we get there. There's not because we just got there finally, but because of the truth that is there. Now, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgments are gone, brethren. And that's what he's promising here. There's a time coming when the judgments will be gone. Your sins will be taken away. The people will be purified. The Lord will be king among his people. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has come in the person of the king and dwells among his people. Emmanuel is described here for us. And God's heart toward his people. If ever there's a verse you, can, you need to pick up and, so, and, and soak your soul on, it's 317. And it's a, it's a verse which, which just oozes with, with difficult theological realities, but it's just so sweet. So don't get lost in the theological difficulties. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a victorious where He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing or with shouts of joy. One man said, he will rejoice over you with gladness points to the inward delight in his heart and his singing is the outward expression of that. Much like Isaiah 62 5, the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, this is not mushy sentimentalism because this is a victorious warrior who's going to sing over us and rejoice over us. O. Palmer Robertson captures this very well when he says that, that Almighty God should derive delight from his own creation is significant in his, itself. But that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner is incomprehensible. God breaking out in singing? God joyful with delight? All because of you? The mutuality of this response is, is obvious. I mean, because in verse 14, he tells us we're to shout, we're to sing for joy, we're to rejoice. And now he's saying God does that over us. But notice what he says. I, and I'm going to probably have to end on this, but I'll, I'll do this and then just have a brief application. Quiet in his love to consider almighty God sinking in contemplations of love over a once wretched human being can hardly be absorbed by the human mind. If the prop prophet's mode of expression appears excessive, it must be remembered that God in is, in, is in himself the very essence of love. He is love in his essence. 
at the direct sort as the direct source of all true love, he by his very nature excels every human emotion of true love. This is what the prophet says on behalf of God. And he says, it's not so much that it's difficult for us always to grasp the theological realities. It's that he does it for you. He delights over you. He delights over you. He sings over us with joy. That is God's posture toward his believing remnant. And it's all of grace. It's all because what he has done in us that reflects his character, that he sees, as it were, himself in us and rejoices at what he has done in us. And we get to partake of that joy over us. This is our God. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. For God so loved the world, he loved the world and he manifested it in this way, that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. Paul prays, and this should be our closing prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his power, through his Spirit, in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. What? Comprehend the boundless love of God? We never will. So it's certainly worth meditating on as often as possible, that we might know and be encouraged when we see the day of the Lord is near, a day of terror and judgment. It's also a day of deliverance. It's a day of restoration. It's a day of hope in which we will see and know something of that love like we have never known before. To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Brethren, let us rejoice and let us not fear. That's what the prophet says. Do not fear. Why? Because this God is for us. He delivered up his son for us. He declared us not guilty in him. And he determines that we will never be separated from his love. We have nothing to fear. May God help us to dwell in that, in that reality. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Zephaniah and this prophecy of hope. Help us to cull from it those things which will encourage and strengthen our hearts. Help us, O oh God, to beware of the sins that so often mark the people of God in their worship and in our lives. Deliver us, O oh God, from practical atheism, from the dangers of Baal worship, 
Lord, help us to repent and to flee and to seek the Lord Jesus Christ regularly. Lord, thank you for Zephaniah. Be with us this day that we would know something of your presence among us, that it would encourage and strengthen us, that we would persevere until the day that Christ returns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.